Good evening, everyone. Oh, that's great. I love microphones. <laughs> um, welcome to the third annual William Russell Lecture. We're pleased to have all of you with us. I'm Priscilla Lawrence, the Executive Director of the Historic New Orleans Collection. And the only order of business that I have before we start our program is to invite you, if you haven't already come, or if you'd like to come back to see the exhibition that we have on Royal Street, this vast country of Louisiana deals with the founding years of our area and has some wonderful material in it. So please do come and see it. Uh, it's open Tuesday through Saturday, uh, 10 to 4.30 through June 15th. So please do come and see. I'd like to introduce Dr. Alfred Lemon, who is director of the Williams Research Center, and he will get our program started. Thank you. It's a pleasure to once again welcome you to the annual Bill Russell Lecture. And we would like to thank especially the Bienville House Hotel, World Alliance for Music, and the New Orleans Jazz National Heritage Park for their assistance with tonight's presentation. And once again, we have friends who have joined here from as far away as Minnesota and a representative from Sweden of the Swedish Bunk Johnson Society. We are particularly pleased that Mr. George Buck is with us tonight and his wife, Nina. As you are probably aware, Mr. Buck continues Mr. Russell's work by producing his American music record label. Likewise, we are very pleased to have with us music educators such as Harold Baptiste. For this is not only a lecture, but truly an invitation to research to use the Russell Collection, which was acquired in 1992 with funds from the Clarice Claiborne Green of Request. We have been very fortunate in the past to secure speakers such as Michael White, Bruce Rayburn, and Barry Martin. And tonight we are really have an extra treat in that we've been able to lure James DePogny away from the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, where he's usually kept very busy teaching music theory and jazz. In addition to teaching music theory and jazz, he is quite active as a researcher, a pianist band leader, arranger, and recording artist. As a teacher, he is the recipient of the Faculty Recognition Award and the Thurnell Professorship, which is awarded for outstanding teaching. As a researcher, he is the editor of Jelly Roll Martin, the, the collection of piano music. It was the first of its kind ever edition of a jazz musician's work. As a performer, he concertizes and records with the James DePogny Chicago Jazz Band. And as a frequent researcher here, he has explored Bill Russell's collection of Jelly Roll Martin's manuscripts and was invited by the Chicago Humanities Festival to perform those works with the Chicago Jazz Ensemble about 18 months ago. And I think we're going to have a real treat in store for us today. And please join me in welcoming Mr. DePogny. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I suppose most of you know the, the basics of uh, Jelly Roll Morton's life, that he was born somewhere around here. We're not so sure it was actually New Orleans in 1890. Um, when he, he left here, um, he, he had a kind of a... He had a kind of a, a lifelong career... Um, a part of which, the part that was sort of nested in Chicago in the 1920s, was a, a period of great prosperity and uh, success. He had the best-selling records on the Victor label, which was a big deal in those days. Well, I guess it would be a big deal now, too, if Victor still had that kind of music on it. Um, <clears throat> up to that point, he'd been, um, he'd been, in addition, a vaudeville performer and so forth, and... Um, once the his his heyday had passed, he he had not such great luck at things. He had something of a comeback in the 30s, 
And um, one of the things that happened in the 30s was a, a, a fair amount of his music was left in the hands of his publisher. And it's in this building now. And this is some of the stuff I've been prowling through. Um, Alfred um, uh, mentioned the stuff that's here. And some of it is... Uh, previously unknown music and my colleague Butch Thompson and I are going to try to make sure it's, it, it gets known by, by putting some of it into print and I want to talk about some of that tonight. Um, this is ostensibly about piano music but, but Morton as a composer wrote music that um, was movable. It could be moved into other, other performing media as well. So although he was probably the greatest uh, realizer of his own music, um, it was played by many, 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 many other groups, uh, instrumentalists. And when Morton was able to get the kind of New Orleans musicians who understood what he was after, he got, he got really good results. And you can, you can almost trace the artistic success of his records by counting the percentage of New Orleans musicians in the groups, and as it declined, things got less good. Um, Jelly Roll Morton was the, the, the first great jazz artist. Um, I discovered Jelly Roll... I'm, I'm 61, and when I discovered Jelly Roll Morton's music, about 19... Well, I was about 14 years old. And at that time, the, the, uh, the word on the street about Jelly Roll Morton was he was this colorful marginally talented character who inhabited the outskirts of the jazz world. And the whole critical establishment, especially people like Leonard Feather, could find not very much to admire about him. And it's a, it's a measure of how much things have changed that uh, people study his music now and are, are very interested in it, take it very seriously, and uh, they should. I had no idea at the age of 14 why I like the music as much as I did, but I, I went off and got these degrees in music, and I'm very happy to discover that it's built very, very well, that it's, that it's really good music in, in, any, in any way you care to look at it. Um, one of the things that's interesting when you talk about jazz and composing is just the sort of paradox between uh, what you can do when you, when you compose music that is meant to have improvisation built into it. Um, even Morton's own recordings, if we could line up, for instance, he, he made seven different piano solo recordings of his, probably his best-known piece, King Porter Stomp, and they're all different. They're also all recognizable as King Porter Stomp. So it's interesting to think about what it is that's the core of recognizability and what it is that sort of gives the music its identity, regardless of whether Morton himself was playing it or somebody else was. Uh, so in Morton's version of composition, you, you, had to, you had to compose stuff so that, the, so that the music was recognizable, and you had to compose it in such a way that would permit, or I would say in some cases even encourage, improvisation. Um, so there, there's sort of two conflicting things here. Um, Morton grew up playing ragtime, and he found ways to relate things in pieces. To as, as people, we seem to like things where, uh, in, a, in a span of music, there are corroborative details. Things that happen here refer to things that are going to happen, and things that happen here refer to things that already have happened, and so forth. And in, in my sort of academic life as a music theorist, I spend time looking at, you know, Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven, and we get, we're interested in what makes those things work that way. Well, what's interesting is that Jelly Roll Morton's music, in some cases, has many of the same features. And I think this is not because he studied Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven, but because he was just wired up like a human being, and he still liked this kind of orderliness and the idea that, that there was this kind of rich patterning where things referred to each other. I'd like to talk about that a little bit, and that's what these semi-daunting graphs of mine are about, <clears throat> and I'll sort of talk through these. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that uh, coexists in 
Morton is is a view of improvisation that sort of has two different ways of looking at it. In one version of it, he said, when he was interviewed in 1938, my theory is to never discard the melody. And this squares with a great deal of early New Orleans playing, where players, um, although they were improvising, referred enough to the melody that you sort of always knew where they were. Now, this is something that's largely disappeared in jazz practice nowadays, except when jazz musicians play what they call ballads. Very typically in these, these slow, moody pieces, players hang around the melody more and sort of embellish it. Now, this is something that the earlier New Orleans players did sort of throughout. The more modern view of improvisation is simply that you you skim off the melodic layer of the music and you use the harmonic layer as a basis to create new melodies for. Morton did both of these things. And if we really look at his music, we can even tell where you're supposed to do which kind of thing, where you're supposed to stick close to the melody and where you're supposed to improvise in this, in this freer and sort of more modern way. Uh, so when he said this thing about never discarding the melody... He's probably talking about playing his own highly developed pieces of music. The way jazz developed, uh, it kind of discarded after a while, or at least to a very large extent, it discarded its own native repertoire and started concentrating on popular music. Well, if Jelly Roll Morton wrote a piece of music that had three strains in it and there's a 16-bar melody, and then another 16-bar melody, and these are repeated, and then a 32-bar melody. That's, uh, somebody help me, 64 measures of composed, com entirely composed stuff. If you compare this with a pop tune, let's take a tune that you, you all know, like Honeysuckle Rose, for instance. Honeysuckle Rose has an 8-bar phrase, and then it repeats it. Then it does something different. Then it goes back to the first thing. So from that point of view, the piece basically has only 16 bars of composed music. Now, what does this mean for performance? It means that if you're going to do the kind of improvisation where you stick close to the melody, you're going to get really tired of it quickly because it won't bear up under this. You can't repeat these 16 bars over and over and over again. In Jelly Roll Morton's music, you can do that because there is more composed material and it's more... <clears throat> it, it heads off in different directions at different times and so forth. So it's an interesting, to me, an interesting uh, view of how you can assemble things and why you would assemble things one way for one kind of performance and one way for another. And as I say, he, he kind of mixed these up. And I'd like to show you some of, some of what that amounts to. Um, he wrote these pieces that were multi-strain pieces like like rags, but he built in this uh, opportunity and necessity for improvisation. And he also did something that I don't find in, in rags, which is this kind of interrelating thing. If you think of ragtime that you've heard, you know, you hear a tune, and then the piece moves on to another tune, and then it moves on to another tune, and maybe it repeats something, and then it comes back again, and so forth. And if our, our sense of how this is moving forward depends a great deal on contrast. Um, and Morton's music does that to some extent, but he also did things where he would build something into this part of the piece that pointed toward something later. I'll, I'll show you what some of that is. The question is, in some cases, uh, can we hear stuff like this? I'll, I'll show you some, a couple of short illustrations of this. And as somebody whose, whose life as an academic is built on analyzing music and the idea that these things are important and worthwhile, I, I have to believe that human beings do hear these even if they can't say what they are. This, is, this to me is very much like um, you know, when we look at a building and we're really happy with the building and think it looks really great and everything, and if we really sit and think about it, we might be able to say, well, I see this detail repeated over here, or I see a certain patterning. And it might be that on first hearing, we, we see nothing more than a kind of beauty and orderliness. And maybe we're not prepared to discuss it in any greater detail than that. Well, I think that's true of Morton's music, too. I think it has all sorts of, 
uh, orderliness and structure in it that we as human beings hear, whether we know anything about music in a technical way or not. So it's under there, and my answer when my students say something like, well, did Bach really know that was in there when he wrote that fugue? The answer is absolutely. And uh, part of the reason we know it is that it happens time after time after time. Nobody sat him down and said, what were you doing here? So we can't, we don't have that kind of testimony, but we have the objects themselves, and they're built that way. So it's not an accident. Good things don't happen by accident. Um, Morton wrote a lot of music, but I've given you a kind of resume here of a couple of pieces, and I thought we could just talk through these. This first example you have in front of you has... uh, has a kind of a linear representation of the piece Chicago Breakdown. Now, as we hear the piece, um, it's um, the first line that says strain. Of course, by strain I mean what we might call theme. Um, <clears throat> it has a first strain, which he then repeats, typically. Then a different strain, which he repeats. And he returns to the first strain, and then he moves on to what I call letter C, which is 32 bars long. Now, as we hear this piece, we hear this, this orderly move, and in, including a change of key and so forth. And we, it may not occur to us, as we first look at this, what sort of game Morton is playing here structurally with regard to building things in. All these little boxes or little rectangles I've drawn in are places where something is reused. In this case, uh, what he reuses each time he moves on to something new is a group of three harmonies. They're not harmonies that always occur in the same order, but they're all grouped together. And it would be as if, it would be as if what? As if one were the goal, you go three, two, one in the, in the harmonic system. Those of you who are musicians will know that when I say one, I'm talking about the tonic. And... Um, So in each of these boxes, he uses some combination of those three chords. Let me just illustrate these and see if you can hear what it is that's similar about them. In the first... Is this working? In the first strain, uh, there's a tune that goes like this. Now that... That chunk uses these three harmonies. When he goes on to the second strain, he does this. Now that's again. When he gets to the last strain, he goes to, um, let's see, I've got to put it in the right key. Well, again. Now, the. I think it. It doesn't occur to all of us as we first hear this, ah, he's doing the same thing over and over again. In fact, if it did, it probably would be a failure. But nevertheless, we can perceive the, uh, the organization that this, that this creates, and we can also perceive that the piece doesn't, it doesn't have too much material in it. It's built out of the right amount of material so that it doesn't ride off in all different directions. This is sometimes the feeling I get when listening to a rag, that there's a tune and there's another tune and there's another tune, and I'm saying, wow, you know, this is enough. But Morton, <clears throat> Morton uses rather more spare stuff because he's relating things to each other. Now, again, nobody ever got Morton to, to say that he did this, but he does it in piece after piece, and, and as I say, it, it can't possibly be an accident. The little asterisk is another thing there. It says crucial chord. Uh, At exactly that point, which is three-quarters of the way through the piece, the same chord appears. Now, the question is, again, can we hear it? Yes, absolutely. It's a very significant chord that... uh, Again, for those of you musicians, it's a subdominant chord. It's a chord that particularly has to do with heading toward an ending point. And he p- positions it in exactly the same place, not literally the same number of measures, but the same proportion through the piece. 
you get 75% of the way through the piece, and this chord appears. And then the remaining 25% finishes off that structure, whatever it is he happens to be in at the moment. Well, this, um, uh, this is a, uh, a great way to put together a piece of music. There are many other features in this that I could uh, bore you with, but I'll move on to something else where I can talk about something else and, and uh, illustrate some stuff. Um, Chicago Breakdown is a piece that he first recorded in 1923, and we don't really know when he wrote it. He showed up in Chicago in 1923, and he had sort of a portfolio of pieces that he started recording. And some of them we have better ideas about than others, but, but Chicago Breakdown we don't know about. Kansas City Stomp uh, we do know about. It was written about 1919, and it's called Kansas City Stomp because it was written in Tijuana, Mexico. Uh, or at least it was named after a place in, in Tijuana called the Kansas City Bar. Where, and Jelly Roll Morton is where he's talking about the piece. And he said, well, the Kansas City Stomp was named after the Kansas City Bar, which is run by a man who was kind of an unfortunate gentleman. And Alan Lomax, who was interviewing him, said, well, what do you mean he was unfortunate? He said, well, he had a little trouble and had to go to the penitentiary for 25 years. <clears throat> Morton was an absolutely great talker. Okay, now here, this piece is built. If you, if you just regard these two, um, these two as sort of charts of how the piece is put together, you can see that there's some similar means. I've used the rectangles in the same way to indicate that there's something that's the same. And then I've done some other things as well. One of the other things you can see is that uh, he's used basically the same form. He has a, an A strain, which he repeats. This is, again, the first line. A B strain, which he repeats. An A strain, two Cs, and then he returns to the first thing again. Okay? That's his, his, um, his probably best recording of the piece has this shape. Um, what would he do if he, if he knew he had more time? Instead of going A, A, B, B, A, C, C, he might go A, 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 B, 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 A, 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 C, 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 A, A. So he would, he would make each of these moves and then just lengthen where he had arrived by playing more, improvising more at that point. Now here the melodic material is uh, in the first strain. The, the, big, the big long boxes represent the, the tune uh, let me play the tune for you. At least four measures of it. Okay. Now, in inside that, he goes... So he has this little shape three times, and that's what those little tiny boxes in there mean. Um, so not only does he have the longer shape, but he, he breaks out this little tiny element from it and uses it by itself. Now this, again, is the kind of thing which in the, in the music school we swoon over when Beethoven does it, so we can't fail to notice it when Jelly Roll Morton does it. <clears throat> um, so he repeats this. Now this is a... You can, can hear this melody. Many people have noted that Jelly Roll Morton's uh, melodies in a case like this are, are kind of long, what sort of romantic sounding melodies. Uh, very pretty. But played. Uh, so there's often this, an interesting kind of uh, cross rough between these two things. These very romantic melodies, which are played in this very rhythmically solid style. And it's as if they're, Morton always wanted to hear this prettiness of the tunes, but he also wanted this, this strong rhythmic quality. When Morton gets the second strain, he, uh, the reason I have the question mark there, I realize I should be more positive about this, is that I, he's, he's building a phrase, he's building a strain now out of little tiny short fragments. Maybe they're related to the other thing and maybe they're not. 
But let me just play what this strain sounds like for you. If I play the melody by itself, you can hear there's nothing to it. Now, that's, that's a tune which we're probably not going to hear over and over again, unlike, which is a, a pretty shapely idea. So anyway, Morton plays this. When he repeats the A strain the very first time in his performances, he goes back and he plays the tune, maybe in a slightly decorated form, but in a way that's completely recognizable, so you know exactly that you're hearing a repetition. When he gets to the B string, he plays it once with this very narrow, sort of untuneful melody. And then the second time through, he abandons it totally, the melody, and he just improvises freely and creates new melody. Now, this is, this is improvisation as we usually think of it in jazz practice, where you play something and essentially you say, okay, you say goodbye to the melody and you improvise from then on. That's what he does at this point. He returns then to the A strain and does essentially the same thing, restating the ideas again in a slightly varied form. Then he moves on to the C strain. Now, here's another one of these places where there's a hidden relationship, and that's why you have these, these uh, longish boxes again. Um, let's see, I'm going to have to put this in the right key for you. Um, this is the tune in the first strain again. When he gets to the gets to the C strain, he plays a tune that goes, which is, um, now that's, that is an abstracted version of this. In fact, you get that same tune if you basically take out every other note. Now, again, this is not something that happens by accident. What Morton does is he plays this thing. He plays it in sort of this chorale sort of style. Let me put it in the original key because I think I can play it correctly then. Uh. And he plays it just that way, these long notes. <clears throat> and then he, he contrasts that with these little bursts, squiggly lines again, of this rather free sort of improvisation. So here again, he's relating different parts of the piece to each other through different lengths of segments, different ways of treating the melodies, uh, repeating them literally in some cases, improvising freely in other cases. But everything's related to everything else. The arrows in the, it says tonal direction. It may not look like that's what it says, but that is what it says. That last line, <clears throat> they're in the wrong place. But what they're meant to show you, the two arrows that point up should be in the Bs. So there should be two, two level lines and then two arrows pointing upward. But the point of this is that if you think of this in terms, again, I'm talking to some of the musicians, if you think of starting here uh, in a key, one of the things you can do is you can change key um, by taking away sharps or adding sharps in effect. So what Morton does is he starts in a certain key and he takes sharps away. So the piece sort of goes up. And he goes back to where he started. Uh, or rather, he adds sharps. He goes up, comes back to where he started. That's the A, which is again the level line. Then he moves in the other direction. Then he takes away sharps. So, so it's sort of the level is going downward. So at the same time these other things are happening in the piece, it's sort of doing this from a kind of harmonic point of view. It establishes a level, moves away from it in an upper direction, or at least we often think of it that way, returns, goes then away in an opposite direction, comes back to where it started from. And at the time it comes back, in the A strain at the very end, the melody returns and so forth. So we have this real feeling of having sort of come home. Um, and... Um, here again, as I'm thinking about Morton's uh, Library of Congress recording of this, it's, it's just a fabulously played uh, performance, and he uses improvisation in this really interesting way. One improvisational premise, if your idea is that you're going to play melodies and vary them, is how much do you vary them? 
uh, do you, are you pulling farther and farther and farther away from the original? Are you coming back to it every once in a while? And this is an aspect of his artistry as an, of, as an improviser, too, that he would, um, <clears throat> he would use distance away from something that's very recognizable as a, a plot element, I guess you could say. Uh, we always kind of know where we're going. This is like, I mean, this is like when we go to the movies, right? We always know where we're going. We see the movie. We know that Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan are going to end up together at the end. And what we're interested in is all the travail they go through to get there. Well, in a way, that's true, that's true of pieces, too. We, we know pretty much where, where they're going to go. And what we're interested in is the process of moving through musical space and time and so forth. All this is prefatory to talking about a kind of collaborative thing that, um, that I'm doing and my colleague Butch Thompson is doing uh, with the collection here. The collection has um, a number of pieces of music that are not known of Jelly Roll Morton's. Um, if, you, if you get a chance, you want to look in this case here, there's the piano part for an arrangement of his of this tune called Gan Jam, which is an a sort of unusual piece in his output. It's one of the things that's, that's, um, that's here and that is largely unknown. Uh, when I came here and looked through this stuff the very first time, um, I found that there were about 12 or 14 other pieces like this that basically the world didn't know about, pieces of Jelly Roll Morton's. There are all sorts of different things. Some of them are songs. And one of the things, by the way, that this shows us is that Morton is conceivably the worst lyricist who ever lived. Some of, his, some of the lyrics are just amazingly bad. I, I, um, so he has several pieces here that we don't know about. He has a piece called Hog Function, and one called One Straight Melody, one called 24 Hours of Love Every Day. Um, <clears throat> Now, I've been looking at Morton's manuscripts for years now. The first ones I ever saw were in the Library of Congress when I went there to look at copyright deposits. And they go back as early as 1918, and the, most, the latest ones are about 1940. So it's pretty easy to tell what vintage these are from. In some cases, these pieces that we have here in the collection are quite old, and they look like they probably date from Morton's time as a vaudeville musician, like... 24 hours of love every day. It's a, it's a kind of a slightly oh, sort of barbershop-y sounding piece. It has that kind of harmony. And it does have lyrics, and um, so it's, it's pretty clearly a song. There are other pieces that are, that are a little harder to figure out. We don't really know what they were meant to be for. Um, we can tell kind of what they do. And there are other pieces that are, that are perfectly clear, like this piece, Sugary, which is undoubtedly a piano piece, even written out that way. <clears throat> so, excuse me. Let me just play fragments of some of these. Actually, a little more than fragments. I'll tr play through the whole pieces. This is a piece called One Straight Melody. Now, Morton, when he wrote pieces out, he was a... Uh, sometimes you read that Morton couldn't read, read music. Uh, makes it all the stranger, because he was apparently quite able to write it um, he, uh, he could read music and he was more than routinely competent writing arrangements and everything else in fact there's even a kind of fluidity about his writing that shows how, how much of it he did and how, how used he was to doing it so anyway in one straight melody it's written like piano music there's a, a line on the treble clef and a line on the bass clef and then another pair of staves and they're barred together as you see in piano music but it sounds to me like it's meant to be a song. And the only thing that makes me think that maybe, maybe this isn't true is that when Morton did write melodies, or did write pieces that were meant to be songs, and he didn't have time or whatever to write in the lyrics, he'd leave a blank staff. So it would look like what we see as conventional piano vocal sheet music, the vocal line with the lyrics and the piano part underneath, the system of three staves, this and this and then this. In this case, he didn't do that. And yet, this sounds to me like a, a song. So anyway, here's a piece of Morton's called One Straight Melody, which uh, you may never have heard before.
No, it's easy for me to imagine that as a... I mean, certainly any any jazz musician, including Morton, could make this as the basis for an improvised uh, performance. But uh, I suspect that it's a song. In some cases, there are pieces in the, in the collection here that are are songs and don't have lyrics written in, but the lyrics are written on a separate sheet of paper or something like that. So it's pretty easy to uh, uh, assemble them. This one is complete. I didn't play it exactly as written. I tried to put a few, a little Jelly Roll Morton English on it, but he wrote, he, <clears throat> he did what musicians often do, which is to write a simple kind of version which uh, would be okay, suitable for getting a copyright or which... Um, which would not be very hard to play, I guess you could say. There's another piece in here called Dear Old Lunnon. L-O-N-N-O-N. Years ago, I played a concert at the Smithsonian. We played this Duke Ellington piece called Four and One Half Street that I was totally puzzled about. Somebody in the audience said, oh, that was a street that disappeared during urban renewal in Washington, D.C. Duke Ellington was from Washington. So I'm hoping that somebody here can tell me that L-O-N-N-O-N has some New Orleans connection that I haven't been able to divine. Anyway, the tune is called Dear Old Lunnon. It's written in a very incomplete form. Let me play just the beginning of what Morton has written here. Uh, sorry. Something like this. Then he repeats it and doesn't even write the. Now, doesn't it sound to you like it's possible that this is dear old London, whatever London is? And then there's another part of the piece that's uh, different from it, sort of like um, it sort of suggests to me it's a verse and chorus pop tune. Um, you know, the verse of a pop tune is the part that, uh, the sort of plot exposition. It's like in an opera. It's like the recitative, you know. My, my, my heart is blue and I feel so sad. And that is why I say. And then you hear the part of the tune that everybody knows, which is the chorus. Well, I think this, this thing is probably the chorus of the piece. And the other part of it is probably the verse. So let me just let me just play through this in a way that I'm hoping approximates the way Morton would have done it. Maybe someplace on some sheet of paper I haven't found yet, there's some lyrics that tell us about this. The thing that's really intriguing about this is that there are persistent rumors that Morton went to England in 1912. There's a man in South America who wrote me a letter years ago who claimed to have seen him there in 1912 and even named the theater where he'd performed. But nobody has been ever able to track this down in sort of like passport records and so forth. Um, so anyway, as you can hear from that, when I played the original version, there's a whole lot missing. Now that that's not so hard to figure out, because when it's um, when when well, let me play this beginning again. 
it's not too hard to figure out what's going on there harmonically, and, and it, it certainly doesn't require me to figure that out. Um, what's, what's, what we have there is a tune and a very sparse accompaniment, which has to be filled in. What we have in, the other, in another case of this piece, Sugary, which clearly is piano music, is that the piece just simply breaks off at some piece, and there's a chunk of the end missing. So Butch Thompson, who's working on this with me, and I are trying to figure out what that, what that missing chunk is. And we think we have it figured out. So let me play this piece for you. This is, this is more like the pieces that are represented in those, in those graphs I gave you, in that there's a first theme sec- that's repeated, a second theme that's repeated, back to the first theme, and then on to a, another theme, the C, so-called, in another key. So anyway, here's the piece Sugary. Uh, I would say, looking at this manuscript, that it probably comes from around 19... somewhere in the late 30s or the 40s. That doesn't necessarily mean that Morton wrote it then, but it does mean that at least he was taking the trouble to write it down at that point. So here's Sugary. first.
Now the very last part, let me play it the way, more or less the way it's written here. Prepare yourself for a shock. back to this, this thing of interior repetitions of ideas, if you remember, what I played at the end was sort of like... So my, my uh, solution for restoring it is to use that, that chunk, reuse it from the end. Now, that may sound like a, a cheap trick, but it's justified by so much of similar stuff. And frankly, I think the reason Morton stopped notating it for, you know, the phone rang or whatever, I think the reason he stopped notating at that point is he knew perfectly well what he was going to do, and probably it did mean repeating that. So this is sort of, what, forensic musicology or something. Um, anyway... I hope you'll look for the historic New Orleans publication of the unknown Jelly Roll Morton songs and piano music sometime in the future that um, Butch Thompson and I are working on. And do you have anything you want to ask me? Questions? Yeah. It it won't sound like anything that special, but. Um, it's in this key, it's this chord. What else? In ragtime, which you said he played at the beginning, they usually have four themes. Uh-huh. And the, you're giving an example of three, te- three themes. Did he deliberately cut down to three themes for most of his writing from the typical ragtime? Yes, he did. And I think the reason is that, for the most part, he knew that he wanted to repeat things and improvise on them. And rather than having more material, he had less material and more opportunity to improvise. I think that's the reason. I'm sure of it. Yeah? Um, you said there's like 10 to 15 unknown pieces in the corpus. Uh, does that include the big band things? No, I'm, I'm not including those. Some of you have heard the... Uh, the big band material that's that's uh, that's lodged here. This includes only songs and piano music. The, we're we're on we're on the track of uh, getting the big band material into print too. But how many big band pieces are there? Uh, it depends on what you mean by this. Uh, there are. You and I were talking earlier, Tom. There are two pieces that I'm certain are not Morton's. There's one piece that is Morton's composition, but I believe it was arranged by somebody else. And then there are four or five pieces that are not only Morton's compositions, but his arrangements and his handwriting and everything else. So four or five. <clears throat> I would say there are four or five that are undisputably pure Morton. What else? Yeah. Yes, Joplin was born about 1868 and Morton in 1890. Morton had enormous respect for the ragtime composers. And at the end of his life, he, um, he mentioned several of them. He mentioned the pieces. He played some of the pieces later on. And he said, well, this is the way they played it in St. Louis, and this is the way I played the same pieces to illustrate how jazz uh, evolved out of ragtime. And there's, speaking of stuff here, there's, there's a, an interesting set of letters between Morton and his publisher where Morton says something like, you know, these, these rags are really great pieces, and if the arrangements were updated, people would really like them. Well, I was looking through the stuff in the collection, and, and there's this piece that I couldn't identify. and has no title or anything on it. And as I sort of sang through it in my head, it sounded like Joplin as played by Morton. And that's what it is. And we, we found the Joplin piece that it's an arrangement of. And I think we're going to, if we can get the rights to it, I mean, this is always a nightmare, of course, but 
Uh, if we can get the rights to it, we'll put that in too, just as showing Jelly Roll Morton's updating of a Joplin piece. Uh, in a very minor sort of way, we don't have we don't have much of Scott Joplin himself recording. There certainly are things that people were allowed to change uh, in ragtime, but and there was also a whole uh, style of ragtime that was more improvised. But uh, in general, I, that that music, the classic rags of Joplin and Scott and Lamb and those people, apparently was played pretty much as written. What else? Beaten into submission, eh? Have you heard any planned re-release of the Library of Congress reports the whole thing? Yes, there is, there is such a plan afoot right now that uh, Rounder Records is interested in doing. Have they actually taken it off? Uh, well, it sort of depends on on what you mean. You may know that there's a set of four rounder records that have most of the music but not the speech. And I edited that set of records and of course was roundly criticized for having removed the speech. But I designed the whole set to come out on, on nine CDs and somebody looked at it and said, well, you know, there's, there's CDs here where there's going to be a note of music. And I said, well, yeah, and that's bad because... And somebody just said, well, no, people aren't going to want this, so can we do a set that has just the music? So I did that. I still snuck some speech into it, but... But anyway, the, the whole... The technical stuff, the repitching the material, getting it in the right order, everything else, that's all been done. So it's just a question of getting a certain kind of green light to go ahead with this, because it's technically it's done. So I hope it comes out. This is... This is like, you know, like saying the Bible went out of print. I mean, I, uh, excuse me, but, but I mean, this is an incredible piece of lore and history and artistry and everything else, and it can't be out of print. Yes? You, uh, you, you don't mention it yet, but of course, what, what it's going to come down to is how much is it going to cost and how many are going to pay that much. So what sort of financial, at the retail for the customer, what sort of uh, financial load is that? Completely? Boy, are you asking the wrong person. I mean, I think the... Yeah, well, I mean, if it comes out on nine CDs and it's in a slipcase, I mean, you know, probably nine times $15 or something like that. I think so. Um, maybe, maybe less, I don't know. Um, there's a lot of material, music material in there that's in public domain, so there's no question of paying royalties on some of it. And that, that's, of course, one of the costs. Yes? When you uh, speak of a big band, how many pieces did this entail, the big band? That's a good question. Morton's known for small band, New Orleans-style things. This was a band that had four saxes. Three trumpets, three trombones, and four rhythms. So it's a real honest-to-God swing band of the period. And the arrangements are perfectly competent big band writing, so certainly could do it. Yes? Um, <clears throat> having heard uh, several of the uh, Jelly Roll Morton pieces that have that Caribbean rhythm in it, and you haven't spoken to that, and it seems to me... The, you know, the creepy feeling in the crave, for instance, mm -hmm. that, that is so extraordinary compared to all the other rhythms like you were playing here. I wonder if there's anything that you could say about that in addition to what you said, you know, about the other stuff. It, it's an amazing addition to, uh, to, to the typical beat. Uh, yes, and the interesting thing is that in the, in the earlier days of jazz, it, it seems to come up more often. I mean, if you know the... The published version of St. Louis Blues, you know, has this in the second strain. And it's, I mean, it's right there in the music. That's 1914. So this kind of uh, habanero rhythm was common, and it's as if it disappeared in the 30s. And then people sort of rediscovered, you know, Latin music in the 50s. But it's, it's something that sort of went underground. This, this tune I played called One Straight Melody, this. Morton wrote a tune earlier 
that's very similar called Mamanita. but it has that habanera rhythm instead, instead of the straight 4-4. Four, four. That uh, 24 hours of love, the opening measure, sounds like Mr. Jelly Lord. Uh, you don't mean 20, uh, you mean um, one straight melody. Yes, absolutely. It's the verse of the tune. It's like the in foreign lands across the sea part of Mr. Yeah. No, no, Absolutely. There's parts of pieces, the verses very often are, are more formulaic than the choruses. So you hear things, echoes of pieces, especially in that part of the piece, fairly often. How does 24 Hours of Love sound? Such a wonderful title. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I really can't remember, but it's, it's something like this. Uh, And you can just hear where the lyrics overlay the melody. Um, it's it's nicer than that. His his version of it is is extremely uh, clearly noted exactly where he wants the G flat to go and stuff. I mean he he well as you can guess I I think he knew what he was doing. What else? Well, I've I've written a fair amount of music, but uh, it's not sort of built along these lines. I mean, some some. I mean, the music I wrote as an a academic is you know far out modern music, and, but I've written jazz pieces too. Um, I, I guess I would say that the the academic training that says it's nice to have corroborative elements and to draw a piece from not a huge amount of material. I mean, that's certainly a part of what I do as a composer, but... What else? Well, then, thanks very much for coming, and look for that publication. Thank you.